0: Welcome, and thank you for tuning into Season 6 Season Finale of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland, they are examined, they are profiled, and they are discussed. Now for this season, Season 6, the focus has been on all robbery-related murders. Or basically homicides where the victim or victims were killed simply because the killer or killers wanted something that the victim had. And like I said in the last episode, trust, trust me, the state of Maryland has plenty of these types of homicides. But I only selected 10 cases, 10 of the most horrific, the most brutal robbery-related homicide cases occurring in Maryland And this is only part one. Part two will come out later, eventually. But for right now, season six, I only focused on ten of the most horrific, the most bizarre, any type of robbery-related homicides that occurred in the state of Maryland. So with that being said, let's get right on into it and focus on this week's episode. Now on this episode, the Thrill Killers Benjamin and Erica Sifrit will be profiled. And as in each episode and in every season, there will be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will also be profiled. And for this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 20-year-old Sahatana Williams will be profiled. Jeez, now, I'm telling y'all, I done seen and I done heard it all. Everything from cannibal killings to people who have drowned their kids to grandmothers who have burned their kids like i'm telling you i have seen and i've heard it all in the state of maryland not a lot of homicides really surprise me and like i mentioned in former or past episodes most killers they have a reason or motive for doing what they do believe it or not i mean at least there is a quote-unquote reason why killers they choose to take a person's life And most killers, they do have, like, a troubled past. They come from, like, um, a tumultuous childhood, a rough childhood. They got a history of abuse or some type of life-altering traumatic event that leads to them to eventually commit the act of murder. But these next two killers, wow. I'm telling you, there was nothing. There was absolutely, like... No clues, no sh- no signs, nothing that would show like what they were capable of doing. Who knew that they would commit one of the most notorious double homicides ever committed in Maryland's true crime history? And these they weren't even from here. They weren't even from the state. They were just passing through. Who knew? Who in God's name knew? What brought these two killers together in the first place? Like, what attracted them to each other? 24-year-old Benjamin Siffrit was born in Esterville, Iowa, in the middle of nowhere. Erica Elaine Grace was born in Roaring Springs, Pennsylvania. I mean, her family had money, and they spent it on her with no problems. She was their only child, and she grew up with a life of wealth and privilege, she did well in school. She got excellent grades. She was an honor student at Hollinsburg High School, where she excelled at basketball. Her parents spoiled her. She was an only child. Her father even had her, in their house, had a, a basic uh, indoor basketball court built for her. I mean, that sounds like a lifestyle of privilege, and that doesn't sound like a, you know a troubled background or a lifestyle of abuse. Benjamin, on the other hand, although he was born in Iowa, he was raised in Minnesota. Unlike Erica, Benjamin, he didn't get good grades at school, and he was a poor student. After high school, Benjamin wasn't interested in pursuing college, so he enlisted in the Navy where he did he did complete uh, basic underwater demolition. He trained for the Navy SEALs, and he completed it training in 1997 after graduating from high school Elaine went on to Murray Washington College in Fredericksburg where she continued to be a basketball standout she did everything right she focused on her life she focused on her grades it seemed like she was completely focused but Benjamin on the other hand he got discharged from the Navy for going AWOL all the time you know for doing stupid stuff like poor performances doing stupid childish stuff like getting a big ass swastika tattooed on his chest. By all accounts, it seemed like Erica was heading down the right path. Then during Erica's senior year at college, she met Benjamin in a bar one night in 1998, and apparently it was complete love at first sight. The two were immediately attracted to each other despite their different backgrounds and Upbringings. Erica did manage to basically graduate cum laude from Murray Merlin. I'm sorry, from Murray Washington College after she after she got her bachelor's degree in history and political science. Just a few weeks after meeting each other, Benjamin asked Erica to marry him. Actually, it was three weeks. She said, "Yeah," and without letting their parents know anything. They eloped to Las Vegas and got married at the Silver Bell Wedding Chapel three weeks after they met. You See what I'm saying? They eloped because Benjamin's parents didn't like Erica, and Erica's parents didn't like him. But after they eloped and did the deed, they eventually told their parents much later that they were already married. I'm sure both sets of parents were pissed, but what you gonna do? You know, all that years of schooling, all that years of spoiling Erica, you know, the college, all that money of spoiling her. See, I'm, nobody talks about how the parents suffer, but I'm going to speak more about that later. Anyway, Erica's parents felt sorry for her their stupid asses, and the couple moved to Erica's hometown in Pennsylvania, where her parents helped them open up a dumbass scrapbook store after all that schooling. What was what was the what, the what the what happened to all that the money the parents spent on her going to school, trying to mould her into being, you know, a decent human being. But anyway, she wanted to throw all of the way into open up a scrapbook store. But anyway, you see what I'm saying? Anyway, instead of some lovey dovey newlywed relationship, this couple brought out the absolute worst in each other. Thinking they were some sort of modern day Bonnie and Clyde Um, And because Erica and Benjamin shared a fascination with the restaurant Hooters, they started breaking into stores and selling the stuff that they stole on eBay. A weird, stupid, turbulent merge where they raised several pet snakes that, according to Wikipedia, they named the snakes original names like Bonnie, Clyde, Hitler, and HIV. It's also reported that Erica suffered from anxiety, and she took prescribed Paxil and Xanax for her anxiety disorder every day. Taking these kind of drugs every day eventually is going to develop into an addiction to prescription medications, and their so-called marriage came with its own share of problems. According to articles for the Washington Post and for the Baltimore Sun, both Benjamin's and Erica's union was a complete match made in hell. Benjamin said that when he looked back on it, his life quickly just went downhill the minute he met Erica, while Erica later told the detectives that Benjamin was physically and emotionally abusive. Erica's family said that their daughter did a complete 360 once she met Benjamin and that he treated her terribly, constantly making her prove her love to him and once he tested how loyal she could be by convincing her to get pregnant. Then after she got pregnant, four months later, he told her that he was only joking when he said that. And now since he didn't want her to be he didn't want her to be pregnant no more, and basically he didn't even want to be a father no more. And he told her she either get an abortion or he was gonna cut it out of her. Wow, I mean, that definitely couldn't be me. After four months But anyway, at four months pregnant, that's 16 weeks y'all, Erica gotten an abortion with Benjamin telling her, I ain't never want a kid anyway, I just wanted to see how far you was going to go for me. Erica also reported that Benjamin was a blatant racist who hated minorities. She said he was a bigot, a control freak who had an addiction to cocaine and ecstasy that he used at least five days out of the week. Benjamin and Erica had an explosive, explosive tempers. He said that Erica had a hot, jealous streak, and the only thing cool about her was that she went to strip clubs with him. Either way, the Murray couple managed to stay together and prove their love and devotion and loyalty to each other in the most weirdest and bizarre of ways. For example, Benjamin bought Erica a 357 Magnum to use, And she bought him a crocodile and a snake to raise. Because of the robberies and break-ins that they would commit to support their little eBay business, they thought of themselves as the characters from the Natural Born Killers movie. And on one fateful spring night, the couple would live out those characters. But except it wouldn't be a movie. It would occur in real life. Memorial Day Weekend. On May 25th, 2002, Benjamin and Erica set out to go on vacation at Ocean City, Maryland, and they rented, rented a three-bedroom condo for a week at the Rainbow on 112th Street in Ocean City. After the couple checked in, they tried to get around by getting on like the Ocean City travel bus, which was like... A bus stop that stopped right in front of the resort on 143rd Street. Neither Benjamin or Erica had enough change to get on the bus, and the couple behind them they basically heard uh, Benjamin and Erica's dilemma, and out of the goodness of their heart the couple offered to pay their fare to allow them to get on the bus. Benjamin and Erica accepted their offer, a friendship began and the couple probably thought that they had found a nice nice other couple to party with and enjoy the holiday with. But little did they know, their generosity would lead them to their own grisly demise. Despite their 19 year age difference, 51 year old Martha Marjorie Janae Crutchley and 32 year old Joshua Edward Ford, they were a full fledged couple who had been together for about a year and had made their home together in Fairfax County, Virginia. Martha was an insurance executive and Joshua was a recently divorced mortgage broker. And like the Sifrits, they were on a vacation, spending their time in Ocean City. After Joshua paid Benjamin and Erica's bus fare to get on the bus, they hang out with the couple, later on, you know, drinking and partying with them, at Secrets nightclub in Ocean City. After drinking and partying and dancing together and, you know, getting high, probably smoking weed, Benjamin and Erica invited Martha and Joshua back to their condo for more drinking, more partying. What happened next was something completely out of a horror movie. At some point, sometime during the night, Erica accused Martha and Joshua of taking her $10,000 ring and her purse and shit quickly went left. Around 3 a.m. that same night, Erica calls the police, whispering on the phone to the 911 operator that people that she didn't know was in her condo and now she didn't know where her purse was and she was scared that there was going to be like a robbery. The dispatcher thought that it was... You know, a prank call, not too serious. And, you know, because the call just disconnected, they never sent nobody out to investigate further. But what happened in that condo, Benjamin and Erica gave completely different versions and blamed each other for what took place while equally still admitting some involvement at the same time. Benjamin's story went like this. He later told detectives that after all the drinking and all the partying, that he had passed out drunk in his Jeep. And when he woke up, he had discovered that both Martha and Joshua had been shot by Erica because she had accused them of taking her purse. But Erica had a different story. Erica claimed that after she had accused Joshua and Martha of stealing her purse, Benjamin pulled out the 357 Magnum, ordered the couple to get naked, and told them to get into the master bathroom, screaming at them, do you wanna die? Erica reported to the police that Benjamin shot through the bathroom door, hitting both Joshua and Martha. Then Benjamin kicked the bathroom door down and shot Joshua four more times. Although both put the blame on each other for actually killing the couple, both Erica and Benjamin admitted to cutting up the bodies of Martha and Joshua. They both admitted to putting their body parts in plastic trash bags and dumping the bags in a dumpster behind a food line grocery store in Sussex County, Delaware, near Rehoboth Beach. After they did this, Benjamin and Erica wasn't done. They stopped at a Home Depot, taking pictures the whole time like they were just, you know, at on vacation, like which they were. But they replaced the bedroom door that he had kicked down and shot through, they cleaned up the place, and reportedly went back out on the hunt for another couple to rob and kill. And they did meet another nice couple, but because Benjamin and Erica basically didn't really have enough time to do what they needed to do and check out in the morning, they decided to give this couple a break. But check this out y'all. Literally, A week after slaughtering Martha and Joshua, Erica celebrates the killing by getting a tattoo of a snake on her hip, allegedly in the same spot where Martha was stabbed. They must have felt invincible, immortal, untouchable. On May 31st, 2002, Erica and Benjamin tried their little break-in routine at the Hooters at the North End on 123rd Street in Ocean City. But this Hooters restaurant wasn't like the other Hooters that they had burglarized before. I mean, what their fascination with Hooters was is beyond me, and I'll never understand. But both Benjamin and Erica managed to break into the Hooters, planning on robbering and stealing stuff to sell on eBay like they had done so many times before. But this Hooters had a silent alarm on it, that automatically called the police. And when the cops showed up, they caught both Benjamin and Erica ran handed putting Hooters stuff like Hooters baseball caps, Hooters golf shirts, stupid shit like a rack of Hooters follow-me-to-Hooters license plate holders, stupid stuff like that, stealing it. I mean, really? Anyway, they was caught putting all this stuff in their Jeep Cherokee. Basically, and they got caught red-handed. They both were so stupid, so drunk, so high off of cocaine and pills, so out of it, that Benjamin was like, all right, you got me. What if we just agree to put all this shit back? You know, can you just like, let us go? <laughs> the cops was like, um, no, Merlin do not play that shit at all. And once those cuffs going on, trust me, they not coming off. So when Erica and Benjamin realized that they were about to be arrested and go to, to real big boy jail, for probably at first just burglary which wouldn't have even really made the news in Maryland when they you know when the thought of a just a burglarizing who does that's not even really a big deal but when Erica thought when that thought of a dirty ass jail cell hit her mind and she thought of you know tears and crying is not going to get me out this time She started zapping out and trying to distract the police officers with a panic attack. Trust me, that shit will sober your ass up quick. No matter how drunk you are, the thought of jail will zap your mind right back to reality. And that's what was going on with her. I I bet that anxiety kicked in real quick, real heavy. So probably not even thinking straight, she was like, can I get my anxiety meds that's, that's in my purse? So the cops being you know, being nice, actually went into her purse to give her her zannies or whatever, but it just so happened that, look, let me just put, let me just say this right. He's a cop, a police officer, and he's searching through a woman's pocketbook? Ain't no telling what he might find that could be incriminating. Ain't no telling what he might find in mine that might be incriminating. But anyway, the officer found her anxiety meds, but he also looked for other stuff, and he found something that he was not particularly looking for. He found two driver's licenses, one that belonged to Martha Crutchley, and the other belonged to a Joshua Ford. The officer also found a few bullet casings from a three fifty seven that was still in her purse. The actual murder weapon still in her purse found in her pocketbook. And the officer found handcuffs, knives, I mean, what else you need? The officer investigated further. He made a few phone calls. He didn't even know nothing about nobody being missing, murdered, or anything. But when he made a few calls to their associates in Fairfax, Virginia, and learned that the family of Martha and Joshua had reported them missing, because not only had either of them reported to, to work when they were supposed to be back at work, but nobody had seen them since they had left for their vacation in Ocean City. But still... People in their hometown even thought that Martha and Joshua, they thought that they were just missing. And they had started putting up flyers looking for them in their their neighborhood and all throughout Ocean City. Nobody thought that they had been killed. The police and the detectives put two and two together and they questioned Benjamin and Erica separately. And the story that came out of their mouths proved to be the most notorious the most high profile homicide case in Ocean City's history today. Erica this little petite girl talked about you know she basically was like oh you know Benjamin forced her to do all of this especially cutting up the bodies but Benjamin held fast to his story and swore that this chick was dangerous and that she had shot Joshua and stabbed Martha. Benjamin said that he had only helped his wife cut up the bodies, you know, and throw them away after he had woke up. Either way, the media had a field day with, all, with this one. And because the case was so big, Benjamin's trial was moved from Ocean City, Worcester County, to Rockville in Montgomery County. Erica's trial was moved to Frederick County. The detectives spent days looking for Joshua and Martha's remains that had been transferred to another landfill, and nine days after digging through tons of trash, they only managed to find Joshua's torso and both of his forearms. The only thing found of Martha's was her legs, and that's it. Benjamin's trial was first, and he stuck to his story that Erica was the crazy one. He said she was the aggressor in this brutal murder and that he had just put out, you know, their dead bodies and just cut them up. And he said the only thing he did was just put the body parts in dumpsters as if that was somehow better or excusable. But after a trial that lasted 10 days, a jury of seven women and five men deliberated for about 10 hours. Over Benjamin's fate. The jury must have believed Benjamin's story because on April the 9th, 2003, they found him not guilty of first-degree murder. The jury did find him guilty of second-degree murder for killing Martha, although it was never really determined how she actually died because only parts of her remains were found. Detectives just assumed that she was stabbed. On June 3rd, 2003, Erica's trial started, and she blamed everything on Benjamin and tried her absolute best to look all sweet, all innocent, like I'm just here for the ride. I didn't do anything wrong. I was being controlled by Benjamin. Erica's trial lasted seven days, and a Frederick County jury deliberated for only four hours on June 11, 2003, before finding Erica guilty of first-degree murder for killing Joshua and guilty of second degree murder for killing Martha. The jury looked at it like this. I don't care who did what blah blah blah. Although Erica may have seemed like she was this little petite innocent little wifey who was physically and mentally and verbally abused by her husband, she was the one who had the gun in her purse when they locked, you know, when they got locked up. Plus, when they got arrested, it was Erica who had Both Martha and Joshua's driver's license in her pocketbook, and it was Erica who was wearing Joshua's ring on a necklace around her neck. She looked the guiltiest, so she was found guilty. On July the 7th, 2003, Benjamin was sentenced to only 38 years in prison, which shocked everyone involved in this case. Even the judge didn't like this, and at Benjamin's sentencing hearing, the judge told him, the judge was like, This is one of the few instances in 20 years that I disagree with the jury's verdict. This was nothing more than a thrill killing and your wife committed. You and your wife committed. You are a butcher. You cut those people up for no reason. The judge even said that he was putting a note in Benjamin's case file that if and when Benjamin ever was eligible for parole, that the judge personally, he wanted to know about it so he could show up and deny his parole every single time as long as he was still alive. Yikes! So he would have to serve the full 38 years. And trust me, Benjamin has filed appeal after appeal after appeal, and every last one of those appeals were denied. Benjamin used up his last appeal in 2010, and that one was denied too. Benjamin was eligible for parole in 2021, and his request for parole was officially denied by April of 2022. If nobody gives him parole, then just like the judge said, Benjamin's earliest date for release is 2040. Erica, she ain't get off so easy at all. Her sentence shocked everybody, including me. In August of 2003, Erica received a sentence of life plus 20 years in prison. Erica was given a chance to speak at her sentencing and hearing, and after she had listened to Martha and Joshua's family's victim impact statement about how their Martha and Joshua's murder had affected their lives, Erica said, "'Everything they said to me, I deserve that and so much more. I don't feel worthy to stand here and ask their forgiveness. I can't fathom their loss. I am so sorry.'" a life completely wasted. Erica did file an appeal to have her sentence reconsidered, basing her appeal on ineffective counsel, like what everybody do, say they, that something was wrong with their lawyer. Um, But the judge basically was just like, uh, no, her appeal was denied in 2014, and Erica won't be eligible for parole until 2024 next which is next year but i can promise you guess what her parole is going to be denied to in march of 2010 benjamin officially filed for divorce from erica and in august of that same year he got his wish and was granted a divorce and like i said the world could not get enough of this case And it has been profiled on American justice, it's been profiled on deadly women, it's been profiled on forensic files, it's been profiled on sins and secrets, it's been profiled on Snapped, it's been profiled on True Crime Daily, and a book entitled Cruel Death was written by M. William Phelps, which was based on this case. And it's been profiled on this podcast and numerous other podcasts. That's why this was one of the most notorious crimes, robbery-related crimes committed in the state of Maryland. I mean, they were both insane, both Benjamin and Erica. Like, what were you on? I understand opposites attract, but goddamn. When I heard about this one, I was like, what the fuck? Cutting up body parts, throwing them in dumpsters, people that don't have records. What the fuck was wrong with um Erica. It ain't that much love in the world. I keep trying to tell y'all, I'm like, what? Said they're convincing each other to kill each other, to prove devotion, and this, that, and the third. Was he her only boyfriend, or her first boyfriend? I think Benjamin got off too easy, too, like the judge said. Um, I'm not saying that he didn't kill anybody, or I'm not saying that he did kill anybody. But, dude, you helped chop up body parts and dump them in a dumpster, even if what you're saying is true. To me, I think that deserves a life sentence. Like you know, like what she got. One day he'll be released. He'll be released one day soon. Actually, he can move on with his life. He can remarry. He can pretend like this never happened. Erica ain't coming out. I tell you that right now. She's never coming out. And I'ma mention the stories about um her, her her parents. Let's just go there. Why come nobody don't ever talk about what adult kids do to their parents? They always talk about. Oh, you're supposed to love your kids no matter what. You're supposed to support, support them no, no matter what. They didn't ask to be here no matter what. Bullshit! Let me tell you something right now. The, the shame and all of the, the drama that she brought onto that family, you know, like, with spoiling her, giving her this, giving her that. You know what? Leave her ass in jail. I, at some point, I really do think that, you know, parents need to walk away sometimes. Sometimes your overindulgement is actually... Harming the situation even more. Walk away from that. Leave it, leave it alone. Leave it alone. If she don't feel remorse. Or she don't feel like she did anything wrong. Or you know. Walk away from that. Sometimes I, I honestly believe. That that's actually best. That child. I mean she's not a child. She's a grown ass woman. She knew what she was doing. Oh, This this case just got me hot. Oh, I'm so sorry. But it's just like. It, it was shocking when I first heard about it. We have a lot of gruesome killers, but cutting up body parts and putting them in dumpsters, we don't have a lot of that. And especially we don't have these type of murders that's committed by people that don't have a history of doing stuff like this. So that's why this was one of the most notorious murders that ever occurred in Maryland's history. And this is why I also included this one. Although it had a little bit of a robbery aspect to it, It wasn't mainly done for robbery, it was mainly done as a thrill killing, but I definitely included this one in as a notorious robbery-related homicide, if not one of the most, and this is why I decided to end, you know, this particular season, season six, robbery-related homicides with this particular one right here. It will always be one of the most notorious murderers committed in the state of Maryland. No question. Now we're going to move right on into this week's Unsolved Homicide. But before I do, let me just say again that this is not just a podcast that focuses on the most heinous, high-profile homicides occurring in the state of Maryland. On this podcast, a portion will always be dedicated to the victims where nobody knows what happened, where nobody knows, or should I say, where nobody is saying nothing about what happened where a victim was literally here one minute and then gone the next minute and you'd be surprised at the number of people who are killed and friends or family of the victim they may have a feeling just a feeling that they know who killed their loved one but because they can't prove it or they don't they don't have like the actual evidence they don't know how to go about getting answers they don't know how to go about getting justice for the victim And they are still left with tons of unanswered questions, unbelievable grief. And it's like the victim died or dies all over again. It's hard to just move on with your life like that when you have so many unanswered questions. You're expected to just move on with your life, pick up where you left off, hope that the detectives would do their jobs, and then hope that the justice system would deliver you some type of justice that can come close to the feeling that you experience when you lose a loved one to homicide. Getting justice in the state of Maryland don't happen a lot. And to be blunt, detectives are kept busy with homicide cases that already have clues, cases that already have witnesses who are not scared to come to court, who are willing to come to like to testify and cases that have evidence. But what about the homicide cases that don't have clues? What about the cases Where nobody's coming forward and nobody just miraculously, nobody saw nothing. These cases are eventually labeled as cold cases. And to be honest, they put on a back burner, so to speak. I mean, honestly, not a lot is really done. You know, not a lot really happens. It's not like how you see on TV. Nothing really happens until it seems like evidence just fall out of the sky. Or somebody opens up their mouth and start talking. Well, on this podcast, every single unsolved homicide needs attention. No matter what the victim did or didn't do, no matter what the victim's lifestyle was like, no matter what they did or didn't do in their personal life, who the hell is we to judge somebody when we ain't perfect our damn so. That way of thinking or trying to justify why a person gets killed, it, it, it like trips me up every single time because who gave us that decision? Who are we... To decide who lives and who dies. You know. Oh th- this person got killed because they was out here tricking. Or this person got killed because they was in the drugs. Or this person. He shouldn't have been getting high in the first place. Like do you hear yourself? Like really. The last time I checked. Ain't none of y'all perfect. Ain't none of y'all named God. Nobody is perfect. And we all make mistakes. So with that being said. The focus for season 6. Unsolved homicides has been all women. All women who have lost their life to homicides in the state of Maryland will be all women. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 20 year old Sahatana Williams. On April 13th, 2018, someone shot 20 year old Sahatana Williams in the 3000 block of Raynor Avenue in West Baltimore. The police were called, and they responded with paramedics around 11, 13 p.m. and found Sahatana shot in the head, and she was pronounced dead at the scene. Also known as Buddha, Sahatana worked at the Lamplight Inn of Baltimore assisted living in Mount Washington, and according to an online obituary, Missa so Santana had a passion for doing hair. She was very outgoing, and she was a very, very lovable person who could easily make friends with people anywhere she went. There is a reward of up to four thousand dollars for any information that can lead to an arrest or an, a conviction in this unsolved homicide. So I already know, y'all already know what I'm about to say. If you have any information. That can lead to an arrest and or conviction in this unsolved homicide, please call Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-402-4824. You can also email them at tips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are Baltimore City Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-402-4824. You can also email them at tips at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of why I do what I do why I got into true crime, why I started writing all true crime books, why I started the true crime podcast, and all of that. A lot of people think I just woke up one day out of the blue and was like, you know what, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to start me a true crime podcast. Nope, that is not even true. There is a full-blown method to all of this madness, and this wasn't just some overnight gimmick. Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website, Maryland's Most Notorious com, and Maryland is spelled MDS, Most Notorious Murders with an S.com, where you can access episodes from past seasons one through five. You can also find links to all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2000 Maryland, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume One. And you can also find links to my local bestsellers Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, as well as Child of Baltimore and Junkie HB Baltimore Story. Uh, Be sure to tune in in two weeks where we will have the season premiere of another set of 10 outrageous, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes with a whole brand-new theme of notorious murders that have been committed in the state of Maryland. Like I said, in about two weeks, we're going to have basically a whole new theme. We've done past seasons have included like relationship type of murderers. We've included uh, teen killers. I've also profiled uh, murderers who have killed children. um, Murder suicides. We just focused, we just wrapped up uh, robbery related murderers. Wait till you see what I have for season seven. You're going to be like, wow, Merlin. mm, mm, mm." So make sure you tune in in about two weeks. Got to get my mind a mental break. We come right back into the most notorious murders and homicides that have been committed in the state of Merlin. This has been a Savage Life production. Be sure to tune in in about two weeks.